Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Hassan Munir. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Hassan is uh, an Islamic history researcher currently pursuing an MA in history at the University of Toronto, where he is at the moment. He focuses on multimedia public history work. Um, he, has re- he was recognized as an emerging historian at the 2017 Heritage Toronto Awards. He is the founder of the iHistory blog and a research fellow at the Yakin Institute for Islamic Research. Hassan has written a fascinating article entitled, Did Islam Spread by the Sword? A Critical Look at Forced Conversions, which is here, printed off my own copy, um, which I will link to in the description below. It's really worth reading. It's actually not that long either. Um, Hassan, could you kindly introduce us to the historical and theological issues you raise in your article? Uh, Yes, definitely. Um, I'd like to begin, actually, with a story just to set sort of the conversation um, in motion. And this story particularly came to my attention because it has to do with the city of Christchurch, New Zealand, uh, which, as we know, um, was the site of a very tragic incident uh, two years ago um, or or three years ago um, in which 49 uh, Muslim worshippers were killed essentially by an assailant uh, in some of the mosques in that city. Um, You know. So the story goes with these two individuals, uh, a father and son duo. So the father's name is Sultan and the son's name is Saleh. And they are from the Turkmenistan region and they are Muslims. And they migrate in the 1890s to New Zealand. And in the very early years of the 20th century, they settle in the city of Christchurch. And the father passes away um, not too long thereafter, but the son, Saleh, Uh, You know, he settles in the city and is able to set up his own business and build a life for himself as an ice cream seller. So, you know, producing ice cream was something that this uh, family had a a particular interest in and a talent for, clearly, because they were very, very successful. Their ice cream became very popular. And because many of the locals were not able to pronounce the name uh, of Saleh, or were not familiar with it, they started to call him Charlie. So he became known in the city of Christ Church as Ice Cream Charlie. <laughs> and interestingly enough, this brand still exists today. So if you go to wow. Christ Church, you can actually still get Ice Cream Charlie ice cream um, from the descendants of Ice Cream Charlie. And he married locally um, to a local uh, woman of New Zealand. Um, And, you know, they had many children and raised a family. And he was very, very well known and loved. He would sell ice cream sort of in the main squares, etc. of the city. And I'm I'm thinking about that in relation to 
the Christchurch assailant, um, because this is a story that that individual, you know, almost certainly did not know. And when you read his manifesto, and I just like to quote from it, but for the purposes of just, you know, having intellectual conversation, he does cite as one of his sort of motivations the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, which wow. was waged by the Ottoman Empire, right? And the point I'm trying to draw attention to there is that this person who was from Australia and went to New Zealand to carry out these premeditated attacks on innocent people, uh, Muslims, in the city of Christchurch, New Zealand, was not aware of this particular history of Muslims within that very space in which he was carrying out those actions, a history in which, you know, a Muslim was establishing himself within this society um, through, uh, you know, intermarriage, through trade, and through migration, and through his social influence, right? So that is essentially an example of Islam spreading to Christchurch, New Zealand, but the assailant had nothing to do with any of that information or that history, mm. he was fixated on the Battle of Kosovo in a faraway place in the Balkans from the year 1389. <laughs> so, so this is something that, you know, a story I like to tell in, in terms of how historical narratives and fixating on certain aspects of history can be um, very, very misleading, dangerously misleading, right? In this case, it was dangerously misleading. He himself cites that battle as his motivation and that doesn't know anything else much about Islamic history, apparently, um, and certainly not the history of Muslims and how it has spread to different regions of the world. Mm. Um, so I'd like to start off with that story, and now we can kind of get back into the narrative. And I think as we go along, the, 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 the benefit of understanding local history and looking at the spread of Islam to different places um, as a very complex kind of story will become more apparent, you know, and I often tell people, if you ask someone, how was your day, chances are, they'll give you after, you know, the initial, it was great, or it was not so great. Um, but if you probe them a little bit, they can give you all kinds of details about the decisions that they made and what motivated those decisions and things like that. Um, but if you ask someone, how did Islam spread, it's sad that they feel very comfortable saying Islam spread by the sword. Right. So a single individual's story of one day in their life and the decisions they made is so complex that it might take you 10, 15 minutes to listen to them, to go through everything that happened. But when you talk about over 14 centuries of history and all of the people involved and all of the, the thinking involved in their decision um, or in the process of them converting to Islam, how do we feel comfortable taking a complex historical topic and just summing it up in five words, right? But this is just something that is sort of um, against sort of, you know, the, the intellectualism. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. 
or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Of the human being, that this is not something that is very accurate. Um, it's not a very meaningful way to describe history. And it's something that is almost designed to be weaponized in certain ways, right? So when we talk about all of the things we uh, enjoy or, you know, like about what happened in Islamic history, and when we talk about all the things we don't like that happened in Islamic history, we shouldn't just settle for these very surface level slogans of sorts that summarize these vast processes in just a few words. We should dig a bit deeper than that, scratch the surface just a little bit, um, and learn to appreciate that just like our lives are so complex, and we would like, everyone would like their complexity of their own lives to be appreciated by others. Similarly, when we look at past figures, we should look at the complexity and the context in which they were operating and sort of appreciate that even if we may vehemently disagree with it or we may agree with it. So that's sort of like just a preamble um, that I wanted to get across and hopefully it's helpful. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So this uh, particular uh, Islam spread by the sword narrative um, has been around since the Crusades. So the first uh, sort of iteration of this that sounds very much like what you might find on Twitter today, for example, Islam spread by the sword, um, goes back to an individual named Peter the Venerable many centuries ago. um, And he was sort of describing Islam and the Muslims in this particular way. And the concept of forced conversions in Islamic history is one aspect of this overall narrative. So this is more like a galaxy of topics, um, you know, and the the gist of all of it is that Muslims are extraordinarily violent, um, prone to, um, you know, barbaric behavior, uh, behavior that sort of offends the the shared morality of all humans, um, as well as that, all of this is actually not just incidental, it's inspired by their faith, right? It's actually inspired by their scriptures and things along those lines. So this is sort of the overall message. And, you know, particularly in a context in which Islam has been, you know, associated with with terrorism by disingenuous sort of voices um, in the times in which we have lived, this provides a sort of helpful history, right? This is very convenient to take the present kind of description or narrative that you have about Muslims and, you know, deprive that of the context of modern politics and, you know, everything that has happened and instead push it back into history and say they have always been like this. You know, Islam has always been spread by the sword. They are all on this core mission to force others to convert to Islam, to subjugate the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So it has been very convenient, especially in recent times, but it's not a recent argument. It has existed for a long time. And it's also not an isolated argument, which is why it's it's difficult to cover all components and all, you know, interconnected aspects of it in one podcast or in one article. So yeah. in the article that you referenced for Yakin Institute, will there be gaps? Will there be aspects that are not, you know, adequately addressed? Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm the first to acknowledge that. And it's just a starting point. It's just food for thought, essentially, um, you know, to challenge some of these uh, dominant sort of narratives. So 
going back originally to the text, right? Let's talk about the theological sort of position. What does the Quran say about forced conversion and spreading Islam? Mm. It's very, very clear. Um, and, you know, interestingly, it's also positioned the, the verse of the Quran um, that relates most clearly to this uh, is well positioned because it, it comes right after, immediately after the what is known as the, uh, the verse of the throne, right, which is a very famous um, sort of verse that Muslims memorize and Muslims recite and, you know, are very familiar with. And the immediate next verse is this. Uh, which the meaning of which translates to let there be no compulsion in religion for the truth stands out clearly from falsehood. Right. And to put it in the words of the famous commentator uh, on the Quran uh, known as Ibn Kathir, um, he said that this passage means, and I quote, do not force anyone to become Muslim for Islam is plain and clear and its proofs and evidence are plain and clear. Therefore, there is no need to force anyone to embrace Islam, right? So Islam essentially is seen as something that needs to be embraced by the heart, even among those of us who were born into Muslim families and Muslim cultures and raised as Muslims, we are constantly encouraged both within the culture of those communities, as well as within the Quran itself to reflect, to ponder, to basically rediscover our relationship with this Islamic worldview when we reach past a certain age of maturity within our lifetimes and then constantly engage until our lives end, right? And so to force others to embrace Islam would, you know, almost be defeating the purpose for why, you know, you want them to be Muslim. So it's, it's a contradiction in that sense, which is what Ibn Kathir is alluding to. Well, can, um, so can I just mention briefly, because sure. uh, that, uh, that some people sometimes say, oh, well, you know, verses like this were revealed in uh, Mecca when the prophet wasn't powerful. But when you went to Medina, it was all very different. And But actually, the, the fact is that this verse you just quoted, uh, Surah um, uh, 2, verse 256, is from Medina. It's from the latter stage of his life when he was, in a sense, a head of state, had political power. And he and that was taught revealed then at that stage, not in the earlier stage when he was, so to, so to speak, powerless in Mecca. So it's really important that even the timing of this suggests uh, when he had the power to enforce uh, the, the teaching was still let there be no compulsion in religion. Absolutely. Right. So I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, because that is important context um, when particular verses were revealed. Um, but yes, it, it would, you know, essentially, again, forcing someone to convert to Islam defeats the purpose for why you want them to be Muslim or why they need to be Muslim, right? So even among Muslims, like I mentioned, we are on faith journeys in which we constantly try to um, re-engage and strengthen our relationship with faith. And that's something that is encouraged, right? Um, that is a separate conversation, perhaps for another time. Um, but essentially then, how does the Quran uh, instruct Muslims to convey the message of the faith? Um, this is outlined in, uh, you know, 16125 of the Quran. So, you know, Surah 16 and verse 125, um, in which it says very clearly, invite all to the way of your Lord with wisdom and kind advice and only debate with them in the best manner. 
right? So this is supposed to be an intellectual journey. This is supposed to be an emotional, a spiritual journey in which an individual reflects on the realities of their life around them. Um, and, and also, you know, it's just part of the lived experience. So there may often be other motivations, right? Um, that sort of uh, drive a person towards Islam, makes them, uh, you know, consider Islam more seriously, et cetera. So, you know, we see these situations in, in, in everyday life, such as for the purpose of marriage, right? And intermarriage has been um, sort of an important driving factor uh, in conversion to Islam in certain places. But that being said, again, regardless of where you are in your journey, whether you're Muslim or non-Muslim, the Islamic worldview is constantly encouraging you to engage with the message and to uh, connect it to your own lived experiences um, and see if it makes sense, right? Um, and, and, you know, it will make sense. It, it will help you understand uh, that this is the best way of life um, and, and, of course, for success in the afterlife as well. Mm. That being said, um, that is sort of the, the theological sort of basis there. Mm. Um, you know, it's important to keep in mind, however, that when we talk about the spread of Islam and when we talk about the spread of the Muslim empire, we are talking about two different things, right? Um, and this is, I think, where a lot of the confusion comes from. So yeah. if I go to YouTube and I search spread of Islam, I will find these interesting animations, et cetera, that will, you know, they're going chronologically through history. And then you get to the sixth century and there is this small sort of blip. Uh, on the map in Arabia, in the Hejaz region, um, it might be green or something like that. And then as the chronological sort of movement, you know, continues, all you see is this green uh, little dot just spreads very, very quickly all over the place, right, um, in every direction. And that is the spread of the Muslim empire historically. So when we do say, you know, uh, just within several decades of the passing of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the Muslim empire stretched from Spain to India. That is true, right? Um, that is different from the spread of Islam. And, and we can talk about that, um, you know, in more detail. But one of the, the key aspects of that is that Muslims remained a minority mm. uh, within those regions and, and not just like a, a close minority, but uh, is, is a minority in that the significant majority of people within those regions continued to be non-Muslims for at least two centuries and in almost every region that we can speak about. And this has been um, sort of studied uh, empirically uh, based on the resources available by, um, by Richard Bulliet and others. Um, and, and so, you know... Um, there's an interesting quote by Hugh Kennedy, uh, who has uh, done a lot of research and writing about the early Muslim conquest, um, in which he says, Islam did not spread by the sword, but without the sword, it could not have spread, right? Um, and, and that's very interesting. Um, sorry, I'm just going to quickly clear my throat. <coughs> Apologies for that. Um, and that's very interesting because... Um, it's important to acknowledge that Islam and the Islamic tradition um, aren't entirely frowning upon war and conflict. There is a concept of justified war, right? Um, there is a concept of purposeful, um, even offensive uh, jihad, 
right? Um, with with is, is something that's very measured, very carefully considered. There are a lot of uh, you know rules around it. There's a lot of limitations on when and how it can be implemented, etc. Right? Um, but it's not to deny that that does not happen. There is sort of this element of empire building, right, of expanding the borders of the Muslim state, et cetera. And the reason I mention that is because you will find these things when you read about Islamic history, about empire spreading and, and conflicts happening and all of these things. But that should not be confused with the spread of Islam, because when you think about the spread of Islam, what you are thinking about most likely is forced conversion or voluntary conversion, but some form of conversion to Islam. And there's a difference between the spread of the empire and the spread of people's acceptance uh, or widespread acceptance of the religion. What Hugh Kennedy is saying is that Islam did not spread by the sword, but without the sword, it could not have spread because obviously it's a historical reality that, you know, as the Muslim empire spread, there was a facilitation, there were more opportunities for is more people to be exposed to the message of Islam, as well as for more interaction for Muslims, right? So Hugh Kennedy is, is not a Muslim scholar. He's a you know very renowned historian. And in agreement with many other renowned historians, um, he is saying these words that Islam did not spread by the sword. When you say that, when you say Islam spread by the sword, there's a very particular imagery, a very particular meaning that is being conveyed there, which is historically inaccurate. Um, but without the sword, it could not have spread. So the the, the sword or conflict uh, would be a better term, you know, has facilitated indirectly more engagement of Muslims with non-Muslims, uh, which ultimately led to the spread of Islam. Um, and this is not something unique to the spread of other ideas and ideologies and even objects, the spread of food to different regions of the world, right? Um, the spread of clothing styles and everything has been facilitated by this pre-modern reality of empire building, which yeah. nearly uh, any, you know, uh, kind of ideology or group of people engaged with. Can, uh, can, can I just mention another um, historian? Um, uh, Kennedy, by the way, is a British historian based in London. I just thought I'd mention that. Um, uh, another, um, uh, in your article, you mentioned the myth of uh, fanatical Muslims sweeping through the world and forcing Islam at the point of the sword on everyone as one of the most absurd myths that have ever been repeated. And you referred to the renowned historian from the University of Chicago in, in the United States, uh, Professor Marshall Hodgson. Um, now, he is the author of this celebrated text uh, entitled The Venture of Islam, Conscience and History in a World Civilization. Now, this is one of the, the standard texts at, un at university. Professor Jonathan Brown first brought this to our attention in a video as, as a recommended reading. Um, the author is uh, not a Muslim. He's a, a Christian, I, I think, um, and one of the most um, celebrated historians of Islamic history. And you reference uh, this book in your article, um, page 199. I just wanted to read just a few highlighted um, words. I was going to say verses, words, um, which are very germane to your comments just now. And uh, so uh, Professor Marshall Hodgson writes, there was no attempt, there was no attempt, he said, 
at converting the peoples of the imperial territories, in other words, of the empire, the, the Muslim empire, who practically all adhere to some form of confessional religion already. In other words, they were Christians or Jews or Zoroastrians or whatever they were. Islam was felt to be primarily, if not exclusively, meant for Arabs. And only within the peninsula, that's the Arab peninsula, was there any sense that all ought to be Muslims. Yet even Christian Arab tribes were still allowed to participate actively in the conquests. In the chiefly non-Arab agricultural lands, the object was not the conversion, but, but the rule of those lands. The limited example of Muhammad is subjecting settled Jews and Christians in Western Arabia was extended beyond Arabia to all lands within reach. The superiority of Islam as religion and therefore in providing social order, would justify Muslim rule, would justify the simple, fair-dealing Muslims in replacing the privileged and oppressive representatives of the older, corrupted allegiances. End quote. It's a bit more there than just about not no, no forced conversions, but the sense of that Islam brought a new social order based on justice rather than the old one, while corruption and oppression. So there's a real sense of wars of liberation almost in that narrative as well. Now, I do recommend that book uh, if you want a, a top scholarly work on this subject by a leading historian. Sorry, just wanted to share that information. Absolutely. And, and I completely uh, endorse uh, as well from, from my standpoint, um, the work of, of Marshall Hodgson uh, is, is great for understanding all of these things. Again, without... Um, without sort of, uh, you know, minimizing any particular perspective or aspect of the history and just uh, pointing out that history is complicated, right? History is complicated. Um, and that's that's sort of the gist of, of the article that I wrote and, um, you know, many of the historical uh, focused sort of conversation that I have. Um, now, all of that being said, um, how does... Islam spread historically, right? Mm -hmm. So that is, as we mentioned, there is an empire being built um, and there is more engagement happening. Um, and so in the second part, I just want to make reference to this. In the second part of this series of articles um, on Yakin Institute's website, um, the second article uh, is titled very simply, How Islam Spread Throughout the World. Um, and within that, I outline many, many examples of how trade, migration, intermarriage, social influence, as well as factors such as the appeal of Islam's emphasis on justice and unity and universality, all under the umbrella of this concept of da'wah, of this concept of invitation to non-Muslims, as well as to Muslims to engage or re-engage with the message of Islam, are some of the factors um, that we can use as categories when we think about, you know, how has Islam spread to different regions of the world? And so there are a lot of references there. There are a lot of stories there. And, you know, I, I encourage people to study, you know, locally within their own regions where they live, um, how Islam has actually spread, how Muslims first arrived in those regions and how Islam has spread gradually. Um, you know, depending on, again, like where you are, right? Um, because the, the factors, uh, some may have played a role more than others, but 
the point I started with is to realize that this is a complex process. It is a world transformational process. And we cannot take these um, uh, such processes that have occurred in human history and uh, sort of summarize them in a way that erases so much of their reality and then weaponize them. Um, and we have to be very careful about doing that. Um, whether whether it's in our, whether, you know, for our purposes, that narrative that we result with seems to be for our benefit um, or not, right? So hopefully that element is clear because of course I feel like uh, we should and we will go on as well to discuss, um, you know, some examples of forced conversion in Islamic history because we are not denying that that has also happened, right? That is certainly part of the picture and is certainly a part of the picture that we have to pay attention to and see, okay, how do we understand this? How do we understand these real events in Islamic history, even if what happened was in violation of the very clear uh, message of the Quran, which, as we said, says, let there be no compulsion in religion, right? But in Islamic history, of course, the behavior of Muslims will not always conform to the teachings of Islam. How do we understand this? Um, so we can discuss some of those examples, as well as some factors, I believe, um, you know, such as the jizya and um, the concept of the zimma or yeah. the zimmi people, etc. So yeah. um, I, I, think, I think those will clarify further the sort of uh, kind of background yeah. we've set here. Yeah, the, 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 no, the, uh, thank you for very much for that. Those, the, you know, what is jizya and, what, and the dimmi state is a really important, particularly in the West, these are real triggering um, uh, terms almost. And to, to clarify what they really mean is uh, be very helpful. Thank you. Certainly. So the jizya um, is, uh, can be translated as tribute or poll tax, um, and it is uh, you know, derived from the Arabic word al-jaza, uh, which basically refers to compensation. Um, and basically what the jizya is, is one of the options that was offered to non-Muslim communities uh, and individuals um, in which they could pay a tax in return for protection within the Muslim empire, right? Um, and that's a very summarized way of saying it. Um, just a few different points uh, about that, just to, to paint a more fuller picture. Mm. Um, the first thing is, what were the other options, right? Um, so if jizya is one of the options that was offered, what are the others? Um, it's usually assumed that the options were you either pay the jizya I do apologize. There's something in my throat. Um, you either pay the jizya or you convert to Islam or you will be killed. That's often the assumption. Um, but in practice, um, and this is documented uh, in another article on the Yukin Institute website, which I will refer to sort of by name, and hopefully we can add that to the description as well, yes. um, just to make it easier for people to access. Yeah. Um, but more, more often, the options actually were uh, in, in, in replacement of uh, death was actually exile, right? So if Muslims have uh, come to um, the position where they are negotiating a peace agreement, first of all, not all of the Aman agreements as they're known as peace agreements, um, not all of them 
followed this this basic formulation, um, but this formulation was often used, such as you know you either pay this tax uh, as a community with certain conditions, which we'll talk about in a moment, or you can of course convert to Islam and become part of the Muslim community, um, in which case you are uh, exempt from uh, the tax, um, although you do have to pay other taxes, other taxes uh, right? such as the zakat, right, or and sadaqa, and there's a very complex sort of uh, formulation there as well. And oftentimes the, the zakat um, is interesting because it was compulsory on more people. Um, and oftentimes the rate which you were paying was actually higher. So when we talk about, okay, well, maybe the jizya was just, uh, um, you know, designed to pressure people uh, from a financial standpoint to convert to Islam. Um, in, in many, many cases, that actually would not be the historical reality. They would not have an easier time by converting to Islam and, you know, removing the jizya requirement because they still were required to pay the zakat, right? Um, and then other sort of taxes that became part of the early Muslim, uh, you know, system of administration. Um, so you have that um, and and you have uh, the exile option, in which case, you know, you do not want to pay the jizya or you do not... Uh, you know, want to convert to Islam, you are free to go. You can migrate to other places, etc. So that was another option that was given. Um, another element of jizya to keep in mind is that, like I said, the zakat was applicable to more people. So the jizya um, was was designed in a way to um, provide uh, protection, or I should say defined in a way to provide protection to adult males um, that the Muslim empire will protect you from external threats um, in exchange for you paying this tax, but only for adult males. So um, women and children and even monks. So uh, people who were involved in scholarly work were actually exempt. Um, the other thing that is interesting about the jizya is there actually is no fixed amount. Um, it did vary from, from situation to situation, from um, empire to empire, etc. Um, and there is a lot of commentary from Islamic scholars from the very beginning about making it as easy as possible. So flexibility in terms of the payment, um, as well as many... Uh, you know, other forms of leniency, um, you know, different rates for people who are not able to afford what may be set, you know, within a locality as the standard rate, et cetera, et cetera. So again, when you dig into the details, you get a more comprehensive picture of what this might have actually looked like. If we mm -hmm. just try to keep it simple and say there was a tax imposed on non-Muslims, of course, that sounds, okay, very unfair, very discriminatory, very sort of designed to compel uh, these individuals to convert to Islam, a form of force, which is this concept of um, zimmitude uh, that is often discussed by, by some scholars, but which has uh, sort of um, been challenged and, and criticized by many other historians saying that this is not actually, you know, a good representation of what we see in the historical sources. The jizya was, was very lenient, often more lenient than the taxes um, that the uh, different communities were, were paying to the empires that preceded the Muslims. Um, so in some senses, often it was a form of relief almost uh, for these uh, you know, communities that were being ruled. Um, and, and that's uh, essentially what the jizya was. And we can talk about the, how that relates to the, the zimmitude, um, which basically means you know, the, the, the zimma, that responsibility, 
um, or protection, the responsibility of protection is now upon the Muslim community, the Muslim empire to protect these, uh, you know, uh, communities of other faith backgrounds um, against all external threats, etc. Right. And all internal threats as well. So protecting them even from, you know, uh, persecution from Muslims, etc. So there have been these examples in history where um, a certain, you know, for example, a Muslim uh, ruler who is rebelling against the central Muslim authority um, decides to uh, basically, you know, um, emphasize uh, his power by um, persecuting non-Muslims. And the central Muslim authority actually has to send a force to actually defend the non-Muslims from this Muslim. Uh, rebellious ruler, etc. So there are examples along those lines as well, um, and and uh, you know that is I think uh, an apt sort of introduction overall to to different aspects of this. Thank you. Can, can I just introduce um, a, a subject which you mentioned on page seven of your article? Did Islam spread by the sword? You, you refer to uh, the famous treaty between the Patriarch of Jerusalem and the second Muslim caliph who died in 644. So this is the early 7th century, really, really early. And, and you say this gives us an example of Dima, the Dima agreement in which forced conversions were explicitly forbidden. I just want to read what this actually said. And you're actually quoting from Professor Hugh Kennedy, this British historian, again, uh, from his book, The Great Arab Conquest, How the Spread of Islam Changed the World We Live In. Uh, from 2007. And he, and he, uh, he writes, uh, he quotes from this uh, famous treaty, which goes as follows, in part anyway. This is the assurance of safety, which the servant of God, Umar, the commander of the faithful, that's what the caliphs were called then, has given to the people of Jerusalem. He has given them an assurance of safety for themselves, for their property, their churches, their crosses, the sick and healthy of the city, and for all the rituals which belong to their religion. Their churches will not be inhabited by the Muslims and will not be destroyed. Neither they nor the land on which they stand, nor their crosses, not their property, will be damaged. They will not be forcibly converted." They will not be forcibly converted. So says the famous treaty between Sophronius, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, and the second Muslim Caliph, Umar ibn al-Kitab, who died in 644. That's fascinating. Absolutely. And, and you know, that was a precedent-setting agreement. Um, and in many other um, cases in Islamic history, when you find uh, this kind of negotiation happening, um, between Muslims and non-Muslims for a peace agreement in newly conquered areas, um, that is uh, that wording is very familiar. So when you read about it in different situations, such as in Spain in the early eighth century, um, if you have read the Pact of Umar, you immediately sense that that ring of familiarity that I have heard this kind of wording before. So it was a very impactful document, and 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 even to this day, really informs much of. Um, you know, the conversation about how Muslims, uh, when they are in positions of influence, um, are to engage with sort of non-Muslim minorities. Mm -hmm. Oh, fascinating. Now, um, can you give um, examples of um, the peaceful spread of Islam? It's slightly a tangential here because 
uh, in most of the world, of course, Islam uh, had nothing to do with empires. I mean, I'm thinking of places like Southeast Asia and West Africa, where Islam, how was Islam spread there if it wasn't through the acquisition of territory by any empire? Uh, very much through trade, right? So I, I mentioned some of the factors earlier. I do believe in, in my research that trade has been um, you know, enormously impactful uh, in this history, um, particularly because, you know, just from our own experiences, and this has been the case throughout history, when you are having a transaction uh, with an individual that you believe is for your own benefit, you might leave a lot of your baggage at the door, right? And come to the table with a more open mind. You know, it's, you might not engage with another individual for, for any other purpose. You might not be interested because they are of a different faith or something. Although, you know, that is, that is something I will say we should frown upon. Um, but it's a reality for, for certain people that they just want to keep to themselves and, um, you know, to their own particular way of life and not engage at all with people who, who have like a different sort of background or approach. Um, but that being said, when it comes to trade, when you feel like you're doing something for your own benefit, you might be able to make a little bit of a compromise on that, no matter how much you might not compromise in any other aspect of life. Um, so that being said, you know, in West Africa, for example, when we talk about uh, sub-Saharan West Africa, um, or even West Africa, Central Africa, that region as a whole, um, the trans-Saharan trade, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence about um, the spread of Islam uh, within that region um, through trade, right? Through this exposure to people who were Muslim, uh, exposure of non-Muslims to people who were, you know, Muslim. And, um you know, similarly with Southeast Asia. And in Southeast Asia, it's also very interesting in the sense of um, the migration, right? So migration is another one of the factors that I mentioned, um, and that's both forced as well as voluntary migration. So forced migration, you know, for those of us who are in the Americas, in North America, we know that uh, many of the, you know, Black peoples, the African peoples who were enslaved in the transatlantic slave trade and brought to the Americas, you know, they carried with them this embodied knowledge of Islam, and they were the first Muslims in the Americas, and it became part of the cultural, um, uh, you know, sort of roots of the African Americans and the Afro Brazilians and other communities, which ultimately, over time, through a very long process, gave us individuals like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, etc. You know, uh, coming full circle in a sense and returning to um, mm -hmm. Islam. Um, can, can I just say about that? Yeah, it's it's sure. a really important point here for us in the West, particularly, you know, us Europeans. You know, when we think of, I don't know, Muslims in America, recent immigration, we think of Muhammad Ali and so on. But what you're saying is that Muslims were in America, or even perhaps before the revolution, in large numbers as slaves brought from Africa, basically. Um, but they were there in their millions. So Muslims were in North America, from the very beginning, these weren't recent immigrants from, I don't know, the middle of the 20th century. So that they, they oh. have, they're historically a part of this activity in, in, Northern, uh, in North America Fr from the beginning when there were white Christians, there were uh, black Muslims, and they were all in the, you know, co co coexisting in various unjust ways, of course. But the Muslims were there from the very beginning. And they weren't recent immigrants. So the idea of America being a white Christian country, which is 
the popular perhaps understanding in many circles in the United States is simply not true. And, and we're not dealing here with just a few Muslims. We're dealing here with a very large number of Muslims who are brought to the United States often have to practice their faith in secret, who are suppressed, of course, by the Christian overlords, weren't allowed to practice their faith freely. So this is a, a paradigm shifting moment, really, for those who are not aware of what you're speaking about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really in any part of the world, right, it's that whole concept of this being a recent phenomenon um, is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's like that kind of joke about if you only read half the newspaper, it doesn't mean the rest of the news didn't happen. It did happen, but you only read half the newspaper, right? So just because uh, we might not choose to make ourselves aware of a longer history does not mean that the history itself is not there. Um, so, for example, I think within Europe itself, um, there's a good example of Hungary. Like um, the the region of Hungary today, and all of the rhetoric you hear from the far right uh, sort of establishments, etc., about refugees and Muslims and brown skinned people, and um, how we have to save the essence of Europe and all these kinds of things. But Muslims were present uh, in Hungary, and there's a, there's so much evidence uh, of this. And again, in my second article for Yakin Institute, how Islam spread by the sword, I actually have a very long list of references, as well as, of course, um, you know, summaries of the research that's being done as well. Um, but these are, you know, now 900-year-old events that we're talking about, like a Muslim presence and Muslims present um, and in influential positions in the region that is now Hungary, right? So um, in almost every region, we, we looked at the example of a specific city, even Christchurch, New Zealand, right? Um, and almost every region and almost every place, um, Muslims have been sort of present, uh, and there's a much longer history. And just, just to quickly wrap up the point about um, Southeast Asia, yeah. in that particular region, um, scholars, uh, especially one particular group of, of traveling scholars uh, known as the Ba'alawi uh, you know, scholars uh, from the region of Yemen, um, traveled to Southeast uh, Asia and settled within that region. And, uh, you know, they, they taught the religion of Islam. And, you know, that was sort of the initial driving force, as well as, again, trade, right? Um, very, very far-reaching trade. And again, so many examples of just how far-reaching it was, um, especially around, you know, historically, the Indian Ocean by some historians is referred to as a Muslim lake. Uh, because it came to be surrounded by these um, predominantly Muslim societies, but the ocean itself and the Muslims' heavy involvement in trade was a conduit uh, for the particular uh, movement, not just of goods that were being traded, but people moving along with the goods, as well as ideas right. moving along with the goods, including ideas about Islam. Um, and of course, the, the character of the Muslims um, and the, the unique qualities of the Muslims that the people they were engaging with in all different parts of the world were observing and yeah. uh, perhaps being impressed by. But wasn't, wasn't there um, a, a Chinese admiral who um, very early on was uh, uh, enthusiastically, uh, was, was a Muslim, I mean, and um, built lots of mosques around that part of the world? Uh, do you know anything about him? Uh, yeah, so that's Admiral Cheng Ho. Um, and he was, uh, you know... Um, uh, he was Muslim um, and uh, he served the Ming dynasty. Uh, and he has these famous uh, seven voyages in the, uh, in the, the 13th century, uh, sorry, the 14th century. 
um, in which he sailed into different regions of uh, the Indian Ocean um, coastlines, uh, basically on behalf of the Ming Dynasty as a diplomat, as well as as a merchant, um, as well as as a Muslim. So there's a debate about whether he actually, uh, you know, took the opportunity in one of the journeys to perform the Hajj personally. But certainly, there were other Muslims with him on these voyages, and they went and they went they performed the Hajj, uh, you know, in the course of one of these voyages. He was very influential in Southeast Asia. Um, if you go even today, many places will be named after him. Many historic mosques uh, will be named after him within that region. Um, so this is, again, you know, when we talk about the factors um, that I outlined, I mentioned them all earlier, right? Social influence is yeah. one of those factors in which people use their their personal and their social kind of influence and their positions in society um, to, to, you know, make a certain kind of impression or um, to basically create space for certain conversations and to deliver a certain message, which right. may otherwise have not been delivered or would have to be delivered in different ways. So Cheng Ho is certainly an example of that. And, and there are many others. Yeah, I mean, one of my one of my favorite examples is in England in the eighth century. There was an Anglo-Saxon king of England called Offa, O-double-F-A, and um, some of his coins, the official coins of the English king of England, gold coins had guess guess what the shahada on them that in Arabic. So you know, I bear witness there is no god but God, and that Muhammad is a prophet of God. This 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 it actually was on English coinage in the eighth century AD. An English king had this. Why? Well, he wasn't a Muslim himself. I know some people say I don't think he was a Muslim, but you're coming back to the trade thing. It's a question of you know the the, the emerging uh, Muslim world, and it was really quite expedient to have coinage um, that was uh, perhaps utilizable in the wider uh, Muslim world. But he had no problem with putting the shahada. On his own coins, and you—it's hard to think that today the British coins would have the shahada on them. But in the eighth century, right. they did. <laughs> right. So many other examples. I mean, yeah. you know, we we could prolong this this episode by a lot <laughs> if we were to go into all of them. So, Don't worry, folks. Um, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, you know, and, and this is why I tell people first of all, I encourage you to read the article, um, mm. the second article uh, on Yakin Institute, which will be linked uh, in the description. Yeah. Uh, as well, I believe. And um, the other thing is, uh, look into your local history. Like you just told me something mm. about the UK, right? If we look at any region in the world, um, you know, if you are grappling with this question of did Islam spread by the sword or was it primarily through forced conversions, look into the history of where you live first. How did Islam actually spread in that region? Who were the people involved, et cetera, et cetera, and see if these descriptions of Islam spread through forced conversion or spread by the sword, et cetera, um, how much of that history are they actually, uh, you know, representing truthfully, right? And mm. in, in most cases, in the overwhelming majority of cases, not in every case, so we will talk about that as well, right? But in most cases, you will find that it was a complex process um, and force or coercion or pressure had very little to do with it. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned briefly, we, we ought to cover this, um, uh, can you give examples of forced conversions of people to Islam? Because it did happen, even though it was exceptional. Uh, and the and the thought-provoking details that remind us that historical events are rarely as simple as we too easily believe. Uh, certainly. So, first of all, you know, I appreciate that we're having this conversation because 
um, you know, just because uh, Muslims are unfairly treated and unfairly represented, or I should say they are misrepresented in mm. a lot of historical discourse. Um, sometimes our, our reaction to that is to, to minimize or, or actually, you know, just to outright deny that um, some yeah. of these, uh, you know, um, things have happened in Islamic history that uh, are, are probably not very, um, you know, enjoyable or something we'd like to promote as Muslims today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't really inspire us particularly, these things, these events, right? Dislikable sort of aspects of Islamic history. And there are many of them. And Islamic history is, is the collective experience of Muslims, right? Um, at least that's uh, in a very loose sense. That's how I like to see it. Um, and so it's important to acknowledge basically all of these things to understand them um, before conversations continue in which you are not able to situate your understanding, right? So which happens in the media, which happens in a lot of other spaces um, where if you don't do the legwork and know, okay, a different perspective um, on how to understand these historical events, um, there will be that shock value when you see someone else discussing them from a different standpoint um, yeah. and perhaps weaponizing them against Muslims today. So okay. two examples that I shared in the, in the paper, or I actually shared more than two, but I'll focus on these two for now. Um, the first is uh, the Dev Shirme system in the Ottoman Empire. Um, and essentially what this system was, um, it produced a special force known as the Janissaries, um, which you will come across uh, very quickly if you read Ottoman history. Um, And these were uh, young boys, essentially, who were taken from their families in a systematic way, Um, you know, so not just rounded up and taken, but like uh, boys of a certain age and, you know, a sort of system of circulating among villages and every 10th boy. And, you know, the system fluctuated over time, but the point is there was a system. It wasn't just, you know, the whims of a particular individual, um, et cetera. And these boys, nevertheless, they are taken from their families, which were usually Christian families in the Balkans, and they were then raised as Muslims. So essentially, you know, converted to Islam um, by force, uh, of course, because their their parents obviously were not involved um, in the process or, or people who could rightfully be considered their guardians were not involved in that decision for them. And the children themselves were often too young to be making such a decision for themselves as well. So they are now raised as Muslims to be part of the Janissary force, um, which was essentially the Ottoman Sultan's personal guard. Um, and they were raised in, in this way, you know, so again, so this is, I've described it up to a point so far, but now I'm about to say they are raised in this way because, right? And this is the point that we are trying to make here, not denying that it was a horrific process. It was a disruptive process for families and communities that, you know, and th- there was a lot that was, um, you know, in, in violation of perhaps Islamic teachings there, as well as, um, you know, just, just uh, we would all be sort of morally offended if we were to see this happen, right? Not denying any of that um, or sort of the gravity of this, but the context is always important to understand um, why something happened, how it happened, right? Um, and if we in our own time were to take some uh, lesson from from that situation to see, you know, how we would 
behave differently or make decisions differently, um, it would be important for us to know all of those relevant details. So now I'm going to say um, the purpose of this uh, system was to have a personal guard for the Ottoman Sultan that was um, that could be more relied upon to be loyal to the Ottoman Sultan than perhaps the uh, Turkish core of the Ottoman army, which had other sort of networks of relationships within that society that might, um, you know, prove to be unreliable. Certain segments of that army might be proved to be unreliable for the Ottoman Sultan um, in, in different, in sort of like, you know, fluctuating political context, et cetera. But because these individuals were raised, you know, for a very, very particular purpose and very rigor- rigorously trained, um, they could be expected to be more reliable. So that is the whole purpose of the system. Um, the system, in a way, you know, effectively became a social ladder for many of the individuals, uh, the young Christian boys who were put through it. So they're raised as Muslims, uh, and many of them, they, they reach sort of positions of influence within society, right? Um, and because they are the sultan's uh, personal guard, they're often able to use uh, their position so they don't end up being as reliable as perhaps the sultan had hoped in some cases, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're able to use their, their own influence to basically act in their own interests, as well as in the interests of the non-Muslim communities in the Balkans from which they re- recalled, of course, that they had originated from, right? Um, and so there are specific examples of this, you know, of a particular person put through the Dev Shirme system and becoming uh, an influential person within the Ottoman sort of government and then using that position of influence to benefit their family uh, who remain uh, sort of non-Muslim, um, as well as the community in which they originated and provide a measure of protection, etc. All of which is to say very, you know, in, in a lot of words, it is complicated, right? It is a complex process and it did occur over several centuries and there were different criteria in the reigns of different Ottoman sultans. And so to properly understand this, not to obfuscate the fact that, you know, this is something that is deplorable in my opinion, although, you know, as historians, we try not to go too far uh, in terms of making value judgments about history, right? So we are, we are, we know that our context is sort of limited, our knowledge of the context, right? Um, and history is complicated, again. But it is to say that we need to dig a little bit deeper and understand this. The other example I want to share is uh, the Orphan's Decree in Yemen, which is a decree that was passed by the ruler. So this one is more specific. It was passed by a ruler known as Imam Yahya after the First World War. So this is more recent as well. Um, and basically, it was a decree um, to convert uh, Jewish children to Islam, right? Um, and again, you know, if you read the wording of the decree, right, of the actual document that was prepared um, to kind of give these instructions to the different administrative units in Yemen, etc., if you only read that and don't read the context that comes with the text, if you read the text only, um, you would be convinced that this is clearly a case of you know, deplorable, horrific forced conversion, right? <coughs> but I apologize. But um, 
when you actually uh, look into the context of Imam Yahya himself, the person who issued this decree, um, and all of the different factors at play. So after issuing the decree, and there was a very political purpose for which he was issuing the decree, it was a way um, that he figured that he would exert his authority in in a sort of overall colonial context um, and establishing his position vis-a-vis the British and all of these other, you know, geopolitical factors that are at play. He puts this decree in place and he himself is violating his own rules and actually helping Jewish children escape the kind of persecution that he has Uh sort of, uh, in theory, mandated uh, in writing, right? Um, And providing all kinds of leniency and there's all kinds of, you know, uh, loopholes and gaps in the implementation, etc., um, to the point that despite all of this being known about Imam Yahya, um, to this day even, he's still very favorably seen by the Jewish community, um, mm-hmm. right? Um, despite being aware of this, because they, they know the text and they know this sort of, you know, how kind of uh, dislikable the, the language and the message of the text is, but they also know the reality. Right of what actually happened historically. So the orphans decree in Yemen is this moment of forced conversion, certainly, and certainly, you know, there was forced conversion in some cases of these Jewish children. Um, but there is a larger story, right? And all we are asking, all the purpose of my article was um, was to say, let's look at the bigger picture. Let's let's be serious. Let's not be disingenuous about this. Let's not just weaponize. Um, you know, very generalized historical narratives um, for whichever purpose that we would like, but let's actually try to get a more realistic, more holistic uh, look at the history, which is always complicated. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, what I find interesting is just very briefly touching on the other Abrahamic faiths, uh, Judaism and Christianity. Uh, Islam, as far as I'm aware, is the only one of the three that has an explicit scriptural injunction uh, which you've already read out, let there be no compulsion in religion, 2, 2, 5, 6. There's no such comparable text that I'm aware of in the Jewish Bible or the Christian New Testament. That's not to say, by the way, that the Catholic Church approves of compulsion, for example. That's not the case, far from it. But in terms of the actual scriptures uh, themselves, I think Islam is the only one to actually have this clear injunction that um, forced conversion is completely ruled out. And uh, that, that's very, very interesting. And you see this played out historically, whether there are exceptions, as you described, or even though they are complicated and have various dimensions, which at first sight might not be apparent. Um, it seems to be honoured, this injunction, far more in the honour than in the breach. In other words, it was the norm rather than the exception. Um, other religions, it wasn't the case. It was more the exception rather than the rule. Until the modern era, when... Um, uh, you know, Christianity now is, is much more liberal and much more tolerant and accepting. But historically, it wasn't so. It was actually another way around. But anyway, this is not a program about uh, those other religions. Um, in conclusion, um, Hassan, is there anything you'd just like to to mention uh, about this extraordinary subject? Um, I, I kind of gave my conclusion there just at right. the end of what I said in my in my last uh, when I was speaking. Um But again, just to reiterate, um, let's be people who appreciate the complexity and, you know, appreciate um, 
just sort of all the factors at play in the human experience, right? And the Islamic history is part of the collective human experience. Um, so, and and the reason I phrase it that way is because as much as, you know, I ask that that, you know, due consideration be given when we are looking at Islamic history, that should go for history of all groups and, you know, all sort of traditions and everything. Let's duly appreciate the complexity. It's my personal belief that human beings, and, and you know, it's, it's sort of related to the concept of the fitrah uh, in, in Islam as well, the natural predisposition of the human being. But I will say that it's, it's my personal belief that based on all of the history I have read, um, the vast overwhelming majority of people just want to live a good life, you know, peacefully coexisting with their neighbors and the people they live around with, you know, irrespective of the differences. Right. So um, when we do see um, things, you know, in, in quotations go wrong in human history, right. Uh, for, for lack of a better way to phrase it, when we do things, uh, when we, when we see things that are clearly like, that is an exception to that overall kind mm. of goodness of the collective human experience. Um, it's important to to study them in detail and not uh, sort of get caught up in, in the immediate emotions. And even the emotions are coming from a good place. If you see something that um, is, is morally offensive and, and you have a strong reaction to it, I don't necessarily, you know, consider that as, as a sort of a weakness or anything like that. Um, but we do have to stay measured in those moments and say, okay, we're going to step back and get a due appreciation for this situation, learn everything there is to learn about it, um, and, and see what kind of conclusions would actually be, you know, uh, moving us towards that peaceful coexistence once again. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the lesson in it for me. Perfect. Well, that's a beautiful summary. Thank you uh, so much. And once again, um, I uh, do recommend uh, you read this article, Did Islam Spread by the Sword? A critical look at forced conversions. I'll link to it in the description below, along with the other article um, Hassan mentioned as well. So uh, absolutely fascinating and uh, a really important subject. Um, hopefully we'll dispel misconceptions for people if they weren't aware of the the actual history of Islam in the world, rather than, as you mentioned, t Twitter soundbites or whatever it is uh, that is spreading this uh, false news these days. So um, thank you so much indeed, Has um, Hassan, and um, uh, thank you for your valuable time as well. Thank you very much. Till next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.